So uh, we're in part three about uh, the gospel and how to share it. And I've got just one review slide. Very impressive. I've got it down to one. And uh, it, it, so we're going to try to respond to the truth. And that was something that I realized uh, we, we devoted Tuesday night to this. And, and uh, uh, Janet was really touched by it. Uh, she was with us on Tuesday and she'd been meditating on that. And, and uh, the thing that, that she was excited about was just this whole idea of relationship, the whole idea of union, the seamlessness of it. And so I got kind of excited listening to her before service talk because the reason we're doing this is not just to come up with a, a different view of the gospel. That's not the point at all. It's has have the words that we've been using to communicate who God is, who Jesus is, what He's done, who we are, what's, what's happening. Have we been speaking something that is accurate to the truth, accurate to the reality of what He did? And, and so partly we've been studying this kind of stuff for a long time and digging into it and getting more relational with the Lord and all that. So we're getting to the point where I don't think it's going to have to so much be talked about just in contrast. In other words, I used to say this, now I'll say this. Uh, so we do have a little bit of review. I've got that one review slide coming up here. And uh, the, the way I approached this over the first two weeks was the difference between what questions and who questions about the gospel. And that what questions have a tendency to call up information rather than relationship. Uh, what is God? Uh, what did Jesus do on the cross? All this kind of stuff. All these things elicit a response, but they are generally informational. And as a pastor, I know it troubles me that somebody can go through an encounter with the presentation of the gospel, respond to that encounter, and still be fairly, uh, still have a sense of disconnection from God. Like it's not near, not close, all that kind of stuff. And because I, I, I believe that relationship is the heart of the Father with His children. And Jesus came to reveal the Father. He came to reestablish relationship. I'm involved in a, a Trinitarian theology class, and we're in about eight weeks now. And this last week was just so stunning and so practical because it, it was beginning to emphasize and we were beginning to dialogue. And it's a big class, but there's various people that chime in. And uh, it was just such a stunning discourse about the beauty of the relationship that is the fruit of the gospel. Not just about having a right doctrine or a right thought about God or a right thought about ourselves or a right thought about sin, but the fact that from all time, before all time, our God is in a dynamic love relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that everything that flowed, every decision to create, every decision to redeem, every strategy to redeem, every strategy to create, flowed as a byproduct, as a direct byproduct of the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. And the Spirit facilitates all of that, just like the Spirit facilitates our relationship. And we all know that. You know, in other words, those that are led by the Spirit are sons of God. But we don't, I don't think we really realize the magnitude of what the Spirit is leading us into in our sonship if we don't think of it relationally and we don't think of it closely. And so this, this is why thinking only in terms of what the gospel is can create informational reliance dependent on information instead of on relationship. And so then you find people that can sit there and argue like crazy uh, over you know this belief and that belief, but neither of the two sides of the argument seem to really produce a security in heart and, and that sense of, of warmness, that sense of belonging, that sense of assurance. And uh, you can tell sometimes when people are stuck in that or when we have presented them with a gospel that isn't relational at its core because something will go wrong in their life or they'll make a mistake. And they it's almost like they have to go back and start at ground zero. Lord, do you still love me? Lord, am I still okay? What do I have to do to get out? You know, I'm sorry. Can you please forgive me? Can you please forgive me? Now, I, I'm not against, I'm not somebody who says you should never ask forgiveness. Because I, if, I, if I do something stupid in relationship to Vicky and, and, and am 
insensitive to her, I, I think it's appropriate to ask forgiveness. And I feel the same way with the Lord. Because, I, because the things that, that I can act like an idiot on hinder that relationship. So I'm not against the idea of asking forgiveness. But I am against the idea of feeling like you've got to loop all the way back to the beginning of the gospel cycle to get forgiveness. As if God is undecided about whether he's going to forgive you or not. He made that decision before he ever created us. And he manifests that decision in Jesus before any of us ever made a, a repentant prayer in our lives. And so this is, this is why we're kind of digging into gospel. So that's the, the consequence of the what question. And the what questions also, I love theology. And I, I like systematic theology and all kinds of stuff. And If you've been here a while, you know I do. But one of the byproducts of approaching the truth with, with the question of what is that you can be satisfied with a lot of unconnected principles. And uh, you can even see it if you look at a, just pick up any systematic theology book, and it's broken into chapters, not just for the convenience of reading, but they start talking about God in one way, then they talk about uh the Trinity maybe a little bit. Like I, I have a just an absolute dear friend who wrote a magnificent uh, theology book focusing on the Father and the Son. And the first version of his theology book was 643 pages long. And it was about a third of the way into it before he had the first mention of Trinity or Christology. And the, the combined topic of Trinity and Christology was devoted 18 pages out of 640 pages. Now, we've had some conversations about that, and it, it's been modified a little bit, not because of just what I said, but just because, but that's how it can get. Something so critically important, in other words, the relationship between the Father and the Son from which the decision to create us as his children flow out of that, but it doesn't get the credit because we're studying about all the omni aspects of God's personality or we're studying angelology or something along those lines. And so it's that idea of unconnected propositions and so you, I, as a pastor, I find people who have a wealth of biblical knowledge and a wealth of theological knowledge, but it doesn't combine to give them a sense of assurance. And it doesn't combine to give them a sense of being loved and belonging and being significant in the eyes of God. So that's kind of one of the reasons. We identify growth uh, as knowing or aligning with a list of doctrines. And again, I'm, all, I'm fine with doctrine. I love it. But growth is something much more relational than just believing the right list of doctrines. Okay, So that's one reason. Now, the who questions tend toward relational answers and relational motivations. Um, who is God? Well, that sends you on an exploration to find out something of the person of God. What is God has a tendency to send you on a relationship to find information about God. And so uh, the who questions also work to connect us with God and to connect us with one another. Um, we've talked a little bit about that in the past. I'm not going to belabor it again, but I know growing up, I passed in, in my faith, I passed from uh, Southern Baptist to Assemblies of God, Pentecostal, to a vineyard pastor, and kind of third wave charismatic stuff, and to whatever we are now, <laughs> which I, I don't exactly know what we are now. Uh, followers of Jesus, you know, that believe in the Bible and, and, and our children. But I know that my sense of identity at one point was because I lined up with, with what our Southern Baptist tenets of faith were. And then I, I could find those things in the Scripture. I was good at talking about them, all that kind of stuff. So I felt pretty good about myself. Then all of a sudden, I encountered this crazy thing, thing called the Holy Spirit. And that turned my Baptist world upside down. And I had a whole nother, and I thought the solution was going to just do the things that that enabled me to do. So all of a sudden I was conscious of things like prophetic words, and I was praying in tongues, and we were praying for the sick and things like that. And, uh, but essentially, I just went from one list of doctrine to a slightly broader list of doctrine. It caused me to set a couple of things aside in the past and pick up half a dozen new ones, and so on and so on. Now, and, and, and so anyway... That's not a relational situation. Now, I feel like we have come to a place, by the grace of God, not exclusive to anybody else in the world, but I just think the Holy Spirit's doing this, where we understand, on the basis of a deeper understanding of that triune relationship, 
that pre-existed the original ideas for creation from which space, time, creation, and everything flowed. And, and that the, God has always thought of us as his children, and he has always conceived of himself, thought of himself as our father. And so he made the world for his children. He made the world so that we could relate to him as our father. And sure, sin came in and messed a few things up and all this kind of stuff. I'm not saying it didn't. But the point is, we're in a place now where relationships and motivations are much easier to grasp. They're much more central than just uh, an arbitrary doctrine. And I'll explain one of those briefly in just a minute. Uh, So we identify as children of our Father, brothers and friends of Jesus, the living temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are more aware, I'm more aware than I ever was in the past, that eternal life is not just going to heaven. Eternal life is what it says there in John 17, 3. Eternal life is literally knowing our Father and His Son, Jesus, whom He sent. So here it is. Uh, and, and I want you to... So, so I'm not going to be contrasting this too much anymore. We're just going to concentrate on what we understand to be the, the representation of Himself that God has given us in the Gospel. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You guys are, I'm sure, familiar and recognize this as 17. Uh, chapter of John, where Jesus is beginning to pray. So there's some things I want to I want to show you about this relational aspect. So first of all, uh, last week we had an interesting question about the context because there are certain scriptures that we read in Ephesians that are written to the Ephesian saints, or certain uh, scriptures that are written to other people. Uh, some of the the, uh, the scriptural stuff we're going to look at today briefly is uh, written to Timothy, a pastor, you know, of that Ephesian church, and so on. But this is Jesus talking to his Father. So that's one of the most enriching and rewarding contexts that I, I could think. So I always really let my ears perk up when, when Jesus is saying something particularly, and when Jesus is saying something particularly to his Father, because I, I, I just can't imagine that we're not hearing something fairly relevant and fairly pure as Jesus is praying. Okay, So look at this. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father. All I'm highlighting this for is just how relational this whole thing is. Jesus is, this is after he prepared his disciples in 14, 15, uh, 13, really 14, 15, after he prepared his disciples at the Last Supper uh, for them to be able to survive his arrest and crucifixion, just psychologically and emotionally, and to understand some of the context of it as you get in 15 and 16. He's talking about, yeah, this is going to happen, but I'm telling you this so you'll understand. But in 17, he now is with them, lifting his eyes to the Father. And and this relationship that has always existed. And this is something I want to let you know, or emphasize just for a second. I mentioned my friend's theology book that a third of the way into it had 18 pages on the combined uh, theological topics of Christology and Trinity. That's not uncommon. Uh, Most theologies, uh, whether it be multi-volume sets or big one-book sets or whatever, most of them will start with what's called theology proper. And what they mean by that, uh, most of the time, is this is the, the most basic fundamental theology about God. Now, what I have come to understand is that we make a grave, grave interpretive error when we think that there is value in talking about God apart from the Trinitarian relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and the the consequences to it are too grave to talk about in detail tonight, but there is an assumption that the Trinity is a particular doctrine in the Christian church that helps explain why Jesus permitted himself to be called Lord and worship, or why the Holy Spirit does that. And a lot of people 
I mean, almost every Christian I know believes in the Trinity, but it takes somewhat of a secondary position in their heart about who God is and what God is like. And so what I want to propose to us is that this beginning phrase, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, goes along and let it go along in your thinking to when Jesus was asked by the disciples, teach us to pray. And he could have said anything, and he could have quoted any Jewish prayer of his day, or he could have just started from scratch. What he said was this, pray this way, our Father, our Father, not just his Father, our Father, who art in heaven. So Jesus was extraordinarily conscious of the centerpiece of his relationship with his Father and his Father with him in the Spirit. Uh, Think about also when Jesus uh, went into the temple, near the beginning of his ministry there, and was going to cleanse that temple, he said, uh, you've made my father's house a den of merchants. The context that he rose up against was the context of his relationship with his father and the purity of that relationship and the reality of that relationship. Even when he was a little kid and he uh, he got left behind by his parents while he was uh, listening and questioning the, the rabbis, when they finally found him and all that anxiety and you know that he put his parents through, uh, he said, well, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? That was his thing. So Jesus was ultimately, ultimately conscious of this relationship. And we would do well to let him infect us with that consciousness. He told the disciples that when Philip said, Lord, if you just show his father, that'll be enough. He said, Philip, don't you know that when you've seen me, you've seen the father? And so this is the significance of this kind of an idea. Think about this as, as the, the prayer that Jesus prayed, both to seal the, the, the blessings that he had just imparted over the previous three chapters uh, after the, the Last Supper to his disciples and to prepare them to face the catastrophe of his own arrest and crucifixion. Okay, so glorify your son that your son may glorify you again. Look at the reciprocal nature of this. It's not, Father, I want to set things right for you. It's not, Father, I'm going to be going through some real tragic stuff. Can you help me? It's this reciprocal relationship. I'm going to glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And I, I'm, I don't know how to make a big enough deal out of it without feeling like I'm just like faking it or something. But oh, Okay. I thought somebody said something. Uh, glorify your son, somebody glorify you. And then look at this. Even as you gave. Okay, now he's talking about authority over our flesh. To all whom you have given him, he may give. So the reason I, I think this is important to just think about for a second is what is the byproduct of the gospel? It's that Jesus is giving us what the Father has given him. You could go back to John 15, and it says the Holy Spirit He's going to take everything the Father has given me and he's going to declare it over you. And then further on in John 17, which we won't have time to get into tonight, but Jesus says, Father, I'm going to make your name known and I'm going to be in them so that the love with which you love me, you can love them. Same love, not a different love. Everybody I know almost thinks that that there's, there's... obviously this love thing going on between the Father and the Son, but that God now borrows a different love somehow for you and me, or borrows a different love for the unevangelized, or borrows a different love for the unsaved. That's not what this is saying. Now what that will reveal in a relational understanding of the gospel is that we aren't being given an opportunity. We are being, at the core, invited in to a place between the Father and the Son in that love that goes on all the time. And I spent years pastoring, not knowing that. Not knowing that literally the the life that is shared by the Father and the Son in the Spirit is the life that is being given to me. Even though it says it all over the place in Scripture. uh, You know, God sent the Spirit of His Son to cry out in our hearts, Abba, Father. Abba Father is the relationship that Jesus has with his Father. Because you are sons, he sent the Spirit of his Son. So there's more going on here, more intimacy, more relational intimacy in this. 
Uh, and then, of course, he gets into this idea that he may give us eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. Now, I just I, I want to emphasize this because who's he talking to? He's talking to his father. And we have all kinds of consequences if we don't realize that the God, who is the only true God, is in fact the father of Jesus. And, and... Jesus Christ, whom you sent. This is why this, the gospel is really the story about people being created for the purpose of being fully embraced in the dance of love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not some remote trip to heaven. It's not some ticket to get uh, free of our sin. It is to be included in that Paracoretic dance, and anything that's any degree away from that intimacy, away from that high level, is, is us missing something, misperceiving something. And again, I glorified you on earth, now glorify me together with yourself. Do you see the relational part of that? I glorified you on earth, now glorify me with yourself. And I just want to... I. I want us to get better and better at seeing all of the relational implications because we'll get better and better naturally then at talking about, you know, I, when, we're, when we're sharing the gospel, we're not fundamentally giving somebody an opportunity to escape uh, a horrible destination and go to a great destination. A great destination is a gross understatement about what the gospel is offering. The gospel is offering for us to step up and into the very life of God that is on display and has been since before the foundation of the world between the Father and the Son in the Spirit and that all of redemption is about us who were designed to be in the midst of that right at the beginning. And, and we got, as you said, Greg, he came to seek and save the lost. Are we lost? Yeah. But that's not our primary identity. Are we sought? Yes. We're sought for the purpose that we were created. It's never changed. God's never lost touch with that. So this idea, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. And so in the beginning of this prayer, talking about this glory, talking about this, it is super relational. It ends with Jesus saying, uh, Father, I will. Ma- I have made your name known. I will make it known so that the love that you loved me will be in them and I will be in them. It's, it's more than being saved in the traditional sense of thinking about it. It's more than escaping judgment. It's more than escaping wrath. It is being literally elevated and embraced in the love that exists between the Father and the Son. In the spirit. It's incredible. Incredible. All right. So here's some key truths. And uh, as, as I'm going through these truths, we're going to be going toward the end where we're going to put some words to this in our ability to tell what we think about the gospel, what we think the scripture teaches about the gospel, what the Holy Spirit's doing in the gospel to somebody else who doesn't know it. So here's key number uh, or truth number one. God is, is a dynamic relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, so that's what I kind of rambled on a little bit before. Don't allow yourself to preach or teach or counsel a gospel that allows God to exist independent of the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love and honor for the Father, and the Spirit's constant relational environmental work to create the environment in which that love and honor and everything else flows. There is no God that is true and real behind this dynamic relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of gods that would be pretenders out there, almost every other God. That's why the Trinity is such a unique doctrine. But it's not a unique doctrine to try to set Christianity apart. It's a unique expression of the truth that reveals the God that everybody else is just looking at as a different version of Zeus. This is God. 
And there's some implications to this, and just, I'll, I'll just share briefly with you. So here, here it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. Okay, and then John 14, 16 through 17. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. That word another uh, helper is, is a word like, like Alice. It means the same as that He may be with you forever, and that is the Spirit of truth. So this relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the beginning place it is the context. It is the defining reality of the gospel. Now, what are the implications of getting that wrong? Okay. One of the implications that all of us are familiar with is coming up with a notion of the atonement and the work that went on on the cross that creates a division, a lack of unified purpose between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Now, that's commonly known as penal substitutionary atonement. And it's commonly described as the, fa- the Father pouring out His wrath on Jesus. Jesus interceding so that the Father could then think differently about us. And then the Holy Spirit, I've never had anybody be able to explain to me where the Holy Spirit came down in that issue. Obviously, from an authority standpoint, you'd think the Holy Spirit would take the side of the Father. So he too would turn his back on Jesus. But Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. Right? So maybe the Holy Spirit's got to go, no, he's, he's going through it. I'm going to have to take Jesus' side. All of these questions are nonsense. And they're nonsense because we have created a redemptive strategy that flows out of something other than the dynamic relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's so entrenched in our, our, our Western gospel culture that it's almost heretical to feel like, oh my God, what are you doing, you know? But it is so fundamentally a byproduct of just neglecting the reality that there's never, ever been a time and there is never a God nowhere that was not and is not in this dynamic relationship of the love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all the other interaction. Now, the the implications of that in the atonement are weird because now what you got is you have... So we're talking to... um, we're having a conversation with this uh, unbelieving person right here. Get over and get in the light. There we go. So we're having a conversation with this unbelieving person, and at some point or another, whether we say it this way or not, we're going to be trying to persuade them to put their trust fully and their affection fully in the heart of a father who beat his own son to death so he could find a way to not do that to them. And then we wonder why there's a lack of intimacy in the part of people that respond to this kind of gospel. Do I think the people are saved? I do. Because I think God is the consistent one in that pattern. And he takes people's faith because he loves them. But it's, it's a real issue, guys, if you've ever dealt with people in that situation. The insecurity. I mean, I, I, I talk to people, <laughs> I talk to people all the time that you just know when you're talking to them, they're pretty much looking forward to going to heaven, but they don't have any desire to be face to face with the Father. They think Jesus is going to be pretty cool, but my goodness, if it uh, if they ever got that you know little notice from the angels that do the administrative work or the men in white linen or whoever, hey, guess what? Tomorrow you get to go appear before the the throne of the Father, ah! you know. And and partly the other thing it does is it makes it look at us. We know when we screw up, when we do something that we know we're not supposed to do, this this whole scenario rears its head. And it, it's the same sort of thing that the enemy was able to take advantage of because of that disengaged view uh, with Eve when he said, you know, God knows that when you do this, you're going to blah, 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 blah. So anything that creates a division between this relationship, 
the honor and love of that is is wrong and it is potentially evil and destructive. And so we have to be careful with our words not to leave that impression. And I just give you, you know, I don't know where everybody stands here on this. It's a big doctrine and I know there's a lot to think about. Uh, there's, you cannot make a case for the Father pouring out his wrath on Jesus. Jesus was very clear about what happened on the cross. He said it over and over again. He said, we have to go to Jerusalem and I am going to be betrayed and I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders and I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and I'm going to be killed by men. And I'm going to lay down my life. Yep. Uh, Paul follows up on this in, in, the, in the, the 2 Corinthians chapter 5 telling of the gospel story that was the one the Lord used to open my thinking to this and transform my thinking to it. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And when Paul talks about God a lot, using the word God, Theos, he is very often speaking about, most of the time, as a matter of fact, he's speaking about the Father of Jesus Christ. And he, he has that Trinitarian relationship in his mind, or he has that dynamic relationship in his mind, even though Trinity is not the word for it. Uh, you can read a lot. Uh, I think we looked at some passages in Ephesians last week where the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this, this relationship is there. Um, in John, it talks about God sending his spirit, Jesus sending his spirit. This relationship is there. So, penal substitutionary, uh, penal substitutionary atonement is one of the doctrines that has risen out of ignoring or diminishing the fact that from before the foundations of the earth, God is and is always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Never, there's never been an instant in which God wasn't Father, and God wasn't Son, and God wasn't Spirit. There just never has. So that changes a whole bunch of stuff. When we're talking to people now, what we're trying to get them to is not some version of God. We're trying to get them reunited with their Father. With their Father. And everybody instinctively knows that if, if it's cool to have a moderately good dad, it's going to be great to have a, an eternally good heavenly Father. And the Heavenly Father is from the beginning of Jesus' introduction of that very thought to his disciples, the one that gives them the food they need to eat every day, that is careful to not lead them into temptation, that delivers them from evil. This is who we are representing when we purport to, re to, to speak the gospel. It is the Father of the Lord Jesus. And that's why, if we go back to 17, this is eternal life that they would know you. And remember, just 25 words before, he started it with the word Father. So don't get confused by that idea of the only true God. Who is the only true God? Father and Jesus whom he sent. Okay, make sense? All right, so uh, the first key truth about is that the person or the the relationship, the restoration that we're trying to present to somebody when we share the gospel is a restoration into the family union between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? Make sense? Um, Jesus 14, 16. I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another help, but that's the Holy Spirit. Okay, here's the second point. All, all, 100%, every one that has ever happened, everything that God has ever chosen to do in any form, all of God's works flow from that relationship. Okay, so here's an example about creation. Think about this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was on the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving on the surface of the waters. Right there in those two verses, three verses, uh, you begin, two verses looks like, you begin to see that this diversity and union of the Trinity is involved in creation. And then later, 
in John and again in the first part of Hebrews, all things came into being through him, the word. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So who's the creator? Jesus is the creator. Jesus' Father is the creator, God. And the Holy Spirit is the creator. This is just basic in creation. And the reason I start there is because all the other works that flow out of that creation, all the things that can happen, all the places that we can be called to, everything we're trying to get this guy or gal to be restored into is a work that flows out of this relationship. So we've got to get this this, uh, union and diversity of Trinity in, in the beginning of our gospel story. So do you see that in simple terms? Okay. Everything flows out of that. All the decisions that are made, judgment flows out of that. Uh, just call a couple of scriptures to mind. John, I think I got it in here. Do I have it in here? No? Yeah, there it is. Okay. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Okay, and we'll come back to that in just a second on the other point. But what I'm saying is, whatever the work is, whether it's the wrath of God, whether it's creation, whether it's deliverance, whether it's the call, all of them flow out of that dynamic. They are all governed from the heart of God by this honoring and loving and communicating relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, You know, most people... Think back to the old chick tracks. God is the faceless one that's big behind the desk with a hammer or a gavel and lightning bolts. And so we assign judgment to that. But Jesus tells us the Father judges no one. He's given all judgment in the hand of the Son. And the Father said, I didn't send the Son to judge the world. I'm not saying there's not judgment. I'm saying our view of judgment as we tear apart the Trinity and assign that to a hierarchy of authority in the, in the idea of God behind all that. It's completely false. It is completely and utterly false. And we won't have time to prove all these things in Scripture, but let's go to uh, number three, A, because i got two Scriptures for it. So knowing God, the redemptive salvation eternal life, comes to us from that relationship. Again, when we're going to talk to this person, this idea of the, of the love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, energized by that presence from eternity, the source of everything, that idea has got to come across or we're really not preaching the gospel. We're making up another one. We're creating some sort of religious system that we're trying to draw them into instead of offering them the life that flows literally from the Father beholding the face of the Son and the Spirit and saying, let us make man in our image. And in their image and likeness, he made man and woman. It's really deep-rooted in everything that we, the Scripture reveals and that we can teach. So, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. But do you see in that little blue uh, part in there, this idea of, that, of the uniqueness of that relationship between the Father and Son, and the Son and the Father, contains all the knowledge that there is about that, and that's what we're handing. We're handing this person the opportunity to participate in the Father's knowledge of His Son, which is an exclusive knowledge, because He's known Him eternally, and the Son's knowledge of the Father, because He's known Him eternally all wrapped up and delivered in the Spirit. Okay? 3B, same thing. Knowing God, redemption, all that comes in this relationship. 2 Corinthians 5.18. Uh, this is the one I mentioned earlier. And all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So, so just let that God be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That was God was in Christ. Not God was turning his back. Not he was at some distant place. God was in Christ, reconciling you, my friend, 
himself. And, look, not counting their trespasses against him. We aren't, in, in one sense, we're not even the centerpiece of our own salvation message. Jesus is. What Jesus did, what the Father has done through him. If you go into another place in Ephesians that we looked at, you, my friend, are predestined before the foundation of the world, before anything was ever created, you are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son of His love, the one who was with Him face to face and was God. This is an incredible gospel message. So it's not like we're trying to struggle to find your call in life, struggle to, you know, which sins do you need to recognize before you can be accepted, which ones are tolerable for the first year, the first six. You know, all that stuff is ridiculous. And nobody thinks that way, but that's how it gets delivered, you know? Is is but but what's being offered is this incredible thing. And now stuff like the new covenant as it's expressed in Hebrews chapter eight, I'm gonna be their God. They're gonna be my people. And their sins and lawless deeds I'm not gonna remember anymore. I'm gonna have mercy on their transgression. Why? Because nothing happens in the gospel that doesn't happen already between the Father, Son, by the Spirit. And, and we just gotta get there. Okay. Uh, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Children of God. Cool. How about children of the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, just to be clear about it. And if children heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ. Who is Christ an heir of first? Well, his Father. So it's the heir relationship, the heirship. Heirship. <laughs> what would it be called? No, it's not, not called heirship. Something, just an heir, okay? <laughs> the inheritance. The inheritance. Now, it, it talks about it in different places in Scripture. We'll get into it in detail, not now. But it talks about uh, us being Jesus' inheritance, given to him by his Father. So everything the Father's given me, the Holy Spirit's going to declare over you. And by the way, he's given me everything. Or we see the one in John 17. You know, all that you've given me, Lord. So, now here comes our fourth point. The heart, the motive, and the reach behind salvation and eternal life is understood from within that relationship. And I would say it's only understood from within that relationship. We're going to have to make up an understanding of it if we don't let it flow from this eternal relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, I don't care what parable you read. I don't care what theology you ascribe to. None of them give us permission to say that's not true. Well, of course he sent his son to judge. No, he says he didn't. Jesus said the father judges no one. It's not within our purview to say he was speaking hyperbolically. Of course he's not. He's revealing the truth. That's what the whole point of the scripture is. And this is the truth. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. There's another fascinating uh, passage. I think it's in John 12 where Jesus says, if you don't do the things I tell you, I'm not going to judge you. You're going to be judged already by the consequences of not doing what I say. We've got to come to understand this. We're not trying to deliver this guy from the wrath of, of some God. And we're particularly not trying to deliver this guy or gal from the wrath of the Father. Because that's not what, that's, that's not what wrath is about. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And you guys know we've talked about it a lot. For those of you who are new tonight, uh, that word uh, become is gnomai, and it means to become what you already are. Uh, it, it's an ordination kind of thing as opposed to an origination sort of thing. Anyway, the heart and the motive and the reach behind this is understood as a result of... Um, of God. That was an interesting ad to pop up. All right. Now, 
what is important? Why is it important to, I mean, obviously I'm hoping we all are beginning to see we need to give some serious place to the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this is why this verse is so freaking confusing to most everybody. All right? We try to turn it into a doctrine of universalism or we try to reject it as, you know, we don't have to do that. We just need to understand what it's saying and who it's talking about. It's talking about the Father. It's talking about the heart of the Father. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. So regardless, I don't, I don't expect or ask anybody to make more out of this than what it is, but I do say you don't have permission and I don't have permission to write off what it says is in the heart of God. In, in the heart of God is the desire that all get saved and come to knowledge of the truth. The negative or the reverse of that is the Lord is not slow about his promises. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So the scope, the only place we can, we can draw the scope of this. So one last point of contrast these two scriptures stand in stark opposition to, for instance, the doctrine of limited atonement or double predestination, that God created uh, some men with the design of them being eternally damned and others with the design in his heart of them being saved. You can't justify that with that scripture. Matter of fact, you can't justify it with any scripture. Once you dig in, but it's it's a necessary doctrine in a five point Calvinist stance, for instance. It's a necessary doctrine because we have abandoned this stuff flowing out of the relationship between the Father and the Son, and we've created it as flowing from a God that is distant and is out there defined literally by us through our examination of biblical stories and other things like that. So we assign holiness to Him and we assign all kinds of things to Him that are not what flow between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's, it's, it's a super dangerous thing. So, <coughs> so here are our elements. Now is when I want you to start thinking about the words. And then maybe we can even break into small groups and talk, but eh, not really. We're going to get to worship thing. God does not exist apart from the dynamic love relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. There is no solo God that we have to appeal to. There's no solo God. Anything you're going to learn about God, and there are things you can see by observing Bible stories and by observing other things and all this kind of stuff and prophetic words and ascensions and everything, but everything you're going to know ever, ever, is ever going to be revealed about who God is, is going to be a byproduct or a a direct product of the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the family relationship that is. And the Father is going to be a father like good fathers are expected to be. The Son is going to be a son like good sons are expected to be. Okay, All that he does, especially everything redemptive, flows directly from that relationship and that dynamic love. So there's no sense of withdrawal or indifference toward this person. Never. Because there isn't any indifference between the Father and the Son. And there isn't any dishonor between the Son and the Father. There just isn't. So there's no room for that. You know, that's why like uh, on, on some other issues, a uh, guy like Bill Johnson said, there's no, you know, there's no room for sickness here. We need to keep praying for healing because there's no sickness in heaven. There's no indifference. There's no distance. There's no abandonment. There's no nothing like that between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's no place in God for that to come and be a part of our world especially not in the presentation of the gospel. Uh, third, coming to know God, not just know about Him, is salvation. And it's being given by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is the life that they enjoy. It is not a little portion of our life. It's the love that they enjoy. It is the life that they enjoy. It is the knowledge that they enjoy. Okay, And then lastly, the heart behind, the motive for, and the reach of the gospel is the love 
that is the dynamic atmosphere and reality in the Trinity. Okay? So, let's put a few words to these and you can start thinking about them. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been working to reveal. That would be one way to introduce a gospel conversation. And I just threw some examples up here. Okay? So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been working to reveal themselves to you. Something like that. Again, words that are part of these things. God, your Father, knows you are His child. See, this, this, is, this is a powerful line of reasoning that we have permission to talk about if we know that, that the Father's never seen this, this brother or this sister as separate from him, as separate from Jesus. Never has. Jesus is the Creator. He's the one that sustains and holds them together. Father has never thought of you as anything but his child alive in Jesus, another son of his love. Something like that. It's the truth. And 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 it's not risky to say this if it's the truth. If you don't yet think it's the truth, you've got to work through that. But once you get that this is the truth, this is how God sees us, that he conceived of us as his children when he created us, before he created us, and he has always seen himself as our father, then all of a sudden these are things we can begin to say. You were created to know and love God. You weren't created to be judged and punished. Judgment is necessary. Sometimes punishment is going to be necessary. Consequences happen. But you were created. Your identity, the fundamental reason that you exist, is to know and love God. Jesus is right now making the Father's love known to you. Can we really say that with confidence? Well, if we believe what Jesus said, I have made your name known, and I will make it known, so that the love that you love me is in them and I'm in them. So yes, I don't care who Heine is in that chair, that is a true statement. Dare we ask some questions like, so can you feel his love reaching out for you? I think we can. I think we can. The reason we don't ask that question is we're not sure whether it is or not. Because we don't really understand the good news that we've been presented. Okay? Ready? All right. Thank you for letting me talk there. We'll start from this place next time. And we'll get up and uh, uh, get into some small groups and kick around some thoughts. We'll also, if you want, we can start early with questions next time because I know that this is difficult to swallow the first time you hear about it because we don't want to misrepresent the truth. We don't want to excuse sin. We don't want to misrepresent the obligation we have to faith. So Father, thank you. Seal these things in our heart. Holy Spirit, help us know what flows from your heart, Father. Help us know, Jesus, what you're trying to reveal to us about that love. And Holy Spirit, make room in our lives and our understanding for what's going on here. Amen. Amen.